it's okay for do something to have worse technology because they're a nonprofit. Absolutely not. We need to have the best technology, the best community, the best product possible. And so we're going to be competing on that playing field. And I welcome that because folks who are doing social change should be just as sophisticated as everyone else. And welcome back to Off Record with your host, Corey Levy. Today, we speak to businesswoman and social leader, Aria Finger, who is best known for her role as the CEO of DoSomething.org, which is one of the world's largest organizations for young people and social change, boasting over 5 million members in over 131 countries. In this week's episode, Aria talks about her 12-year journey from joining as an associate to becoming the CEO. She also shares her method of overcoming hard decisions, the importance of transparency, and her thoughts on the future of nonprofit organizations. That and many more. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Off Record. Thank you, Aria, for joining on today's show. I'm super excited to have you. DoSomething.org, I'm a proud board member of. Aria is the CEO. For those of you who don't know what Do Something is, Aria, do you want to share just a couple of sentences about Do Something? Absolutely. Do Something is actually the largest organization for young people and social change in the world. We like to say that we're a tech company, but we're actually a nonprofit by status. And we have 5.7 million young people aged 13 to 25 who take action with us on our social change campaigns. So we focus on everything from homelessness, poverty, discrimination, Black Lives Matter, immigration, anything that a young person could care about. We have a campaign to help you take action on that cause. And you joined as an associate 12 years ago. How did you hear about Do Something? I heard about Do Something the most cliche way that young people who care about social change can, which is on the job site, idealist.org. And I sent my resume in cold and uh, I was lucky to join a small, mighty team of five. Wow. And how did you become the CEO? I guess that's 12 years later. Is that right? Yeah, 12 years later, I've been now the CEO for two years. So it was about a decade into my career here that I made the shift. And one reason I became the CEO is because I had an incredible boss uh, in Nancy Lublin, who is now the CEO of Crisis Text Line, who believed in me every step of the way, and then a little luck, and hopefully some hard work that led to do something really growing from five people to 60 people today. And so it enabled me to have just growth opportunities as we built the company up. And as you know, I continued on in my career. And when you joined in 2005, was it something that you knew in a decade or so, I think I think I could run this company? Or was this been a complete shock to go from starting out as team of five to now CEO of, of a much bigger team? So during my job interview with Nancy, Nancy asked sort of what the future holds for me. And I told her that in two years, I was going to leave, do something and go apply to the Woodrow Wilson School for Public Policy at Princeton. So luckily, she didn't believe me. And she hired me anyway, because what a dumb thing for a job applicant to say that they're going to leave in two years to go back to school. So no, I thought I would stay at do something two, three, you know, maybe four years if I really loved it. And then I'd move on. But I don't think anyone any of my good friends or people I've known forever, no one is surprised that I'm still at Do Something because I'm so passionate about it, but definitely did not expect to be here 12 years later. And let's talk a little bit about Nancy. She's amazing. Nancy, she runs Crisis Text Line right now. What are some of the things that you've learned from her? How long have you known her? It was 2005 the first time you met? And what are some of the things that you've learned? 
Yeah. So Nancy and I met in 2005, right when I started working at Do Something. And one of the great things about our relationship, and I think why it worked so well, is because anyone who meets her know that she is blunt and candid and tells it like it is. And that is something that I appreciate so much. So you always know where you stand. You always know if you're doing good work or not. There's no passive aggression or anything like that. Everything's really out in the open. And I think that similarly, when you're the CEO, sometimes people don't disagree with you, or they don't tell you the truth, or they just try to please you. And one thing that I really worked hard on over the last, again, sort of 10 years that I worked with Nancy is I told her the truth. I always told her when I disagreed with her or when I thought she was making the wrong decision. And so I think she really counted on that. And then I became someone that she really relied on in the organization. And, and how did you do that in, in a way without, you know, offending people? Um, <laughs> yeah, clearly you need to build that rapport first. So I think that's important. But what I always like to say is if you're in an organization and there's going to be sort of a controversial decision being made, you owe it to the organization, the company, the brand to speak out and tell the people in charge or the people who are going to be making the decisions how you feel. But then once the decision is made, even if it's a decision you don't like, you have to fall in line. I mean, your, your only option is to say, okay, I understand the decisions made and I follow behind you. Your other option is leaving the company, of course, but there's sort of no place for pouting or being angry or, or holding that if the decision's done. And so I think I did a good job of, you know, when we disagreed, if I didn't sort of win out on the decision, I said, okay, I support you. I get that that's the decision being made and I'll follow along. And I think that's really important for everyone to get on board with. And do you have a science to making hard decisions? So there's a, a major company decision that has to be made and you're kind of 50-50. Do you have any tactics on making hard decisions? Well, I'll say that I'm always too slow in them. And I think that often the best thing that a leader could do is probably make them more quickly so that you're not sort of keeping your company in paralysis or keeping your employees waiting for months and months. Of course, you want to you know, take time to get the right information. But I do think that you need to figure out what information you need. And it's never 100%. So lay out, do I need 60% of information? What are the sort of key pieces of information that I need so that I can make the decision as quickly as possible? And then move fast. Because every time I've made a decision too slowly, I've always regretted it. And so I know that that's one place that can certainly improve. Did you have an example of something more recent that came about where you did it the correct way? Whew, that I did it the correct way. Or incorrect way. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? I, here's here's the incorrect way. I think with everything happening in the news, we need to respond immediately, whether it's a hurricane, whether it's President Trump's announcement of DACA, whether it's an unfortunate police shooting of an unarmed black man. And I think every time that we haven't spoken up or that we haven't made a decision about how to respond, every time that's been too slow, I've regretted it. And so the minute something happens, you need to respond both for your employees and for your consumers. And when you make those fast responses, have mistakes been made? Have you had to go back and say, well, actually, you know, here's what we meant by that. Has that ever happened? You always make mistakes. And I truly believe that transparency is the most important thing, especially when you're thinking internally with your employees. If people don't know what's going on, they'll fill in the blanks. They'll try to question. They'll try to see what's going on. But if they see that you're being thoughtful about decisions and that you're talking through them and either, you know, they know that you're working through whatever decision you're making, then I think they forget you because they see you as human and they see you as walking through those decisions. And that with sort of corporate leaders lately is sharing their ideas with their consumers and their employees has led them to sort of have that goodwill along the way because they see they're trying to make the right decision. And how transparent is do something? What do y'all do for in that regard? 
personally, I'm pretty transparent. I have my gynecology appointments on my uh, work calendar. So uh, there's really nothing that's hidden on my side. We try to be transparent where it's necessary. So I think a great example is we have a Tuesday morning management meeting where we have probably about 12 of the 60 people on the team come into a room. We're deciding the upcoming programming, what we're going to focus on. We're looking at the metrics and you know how we've done the past week. And someone asked at a quarterly dinner, we have these anonymous quarterly dinners where anyone on staff can ask a question of the C-suite. And they said like, hey, I want to come to that. I want to see what's going on. And we just thought like, huh, we can't fit 60 people in a room, but there's no reason why we can't just open that up, videotape it and let anyone who wants, you know, come into the Google Hangout. So now that Tuesday morning meeting is entirely transparent because there was no reason we were keeping it closed. It was just a, a question of how many people we could fit. So I think when things need to be confidential, they need to be confidential. But if there's no reason, make it transparent. I like that. And what would you say the coolest part of your job is? Hands down, the coolest part of my job is that we can have an idea Tuesday at 10 a.m. to make social change. And then Tuesday at noon, we can have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of young people joining us and taking action on that issue. And there's just nothing more magical than that. Do you have any people that mentor you as a CEO? Oh, yes. So in addition to Nancy, I'm such a big proponent of talking to other people who are in your job function. So we started this group called CEOs for Good. And once a quarter, Nancy and I get together with other awesome and fun and nice uh, nonprofit CEOs in New York who are running tech companies. And we just gab over dinner and we about the problems we're having and complain about funding and talk about our amazing employees. And it's just so necessary for folks to have that network of people who you can completely be yourself with, but who also know what it's like to go through what you're going through. What are some of the common challenges that CEOs for good are going through right now? A common problem for everyone, both nonprofit and for-profit, I think that we see across the space is how much to engage in this, in the political system that we're in right now, because everything has become politicized. And so you might think, oh, you know, the smart thing for anyone to do is just not engage in politics. Well, it's not really politics anymore when you have an undocumented person who's uh, one of your consumers, or it's not just politics if you have three trans employees, or do something has 280 members who are dreamers. And so it's not just politics for them, it's, it's real life. And so I think that's a big question for everyone is like, how do you engage without turning people off? Because you want to make sure to support the your, again, consumers and employees that you really care about. And then I think another question, and this is again, for, for any company for profit or nonprofit that's focused on technology is how do you hire and retain amazing engineers and product folks? If we're going to live or die by our technology, we better have the best technology in the business. And how do you retain awesome employees and keep people happy to do something? The number of things I'm sure is too long to list, but I'll say sort of three categories. One is you stay at a place when you feel like you're doing important work that you personally are contributing to. And just as I said, my favorite thing about do something is the fact that you get to come up with an idea and then execute it immediately. That immediacy and that we're not just talking about things, we're doing them. We're clothing homeless people. We're delivering cards to Muslims during Ramadan. We're making sure that young people have self-esteem and aren't cutting and aren't engaging in self-harm. Like that ability to actually make a difference and feel like your job in particular is contributing to that, I think is a huge reason why people stay. Number two, we do have great perks. We have a sabbatical program. So after you've been at Do Something for just two years, you can take a month off to volunteer anywhere in the world and, and paid and you come back and you have to commit to a third year with Do Something. So it's an amazing sort of four week volunteer vacation that you get to take. And on the Do Something side, we get you to commit to that third year in the organization. And so 
we're happy to have that retention. And then the third thing I would just say is your coworkers. You want to work with smart, brilliant people. And we're very lucky that we've put together an incredibly diverse in every way, whether that's racially, religion, geography, interest, just a diverse group of really smart people. And so it's a pleasure to come to work every day and work with them. The sabbatical is such an awesome idea. Was that always the case or is that a recent addition? Well, it's definitely not recent because I've been on three because you can take one every two years. So we actually put it into place about eight years ago. I mean, we had someone volunteer with Hillary Clinton. Our CTO just got back from volunteering as a CTO with WeVote. We have someone heading to Indonesia next month. You know, someone else went to Japan. It's just an incredible opportunity to open your eyes and see what other organizations are doing and really utilize your skills in new ways. And do you have any routines, morning, afternoon, or evening? Oh, I'm the worst. It's like when you read those articles, it's like, you know what you shouldn't do? Like, don't sleep with your phone. Make sure not to check email first thing in the morning. I'm like, oh, yeah, I do every single one of those things. I'll say the one thing that keeps me going is that I don't drink coffee. I've never had a cup in my life. So there is nothing that I rely on to get me going. I just have to rely on my own sort of personal energy. And I think that served me well. I haven't fallen into that vice trap. But in terms of routines, no. I only have bad habits. I can't impart any good ones, so I should just stop there. What are some of the bad habits that you're trying to solve or fix? I mean, stop using social media. It's like, it's embarrassing to talk about the same sort of failures as everyone else. No, I think that the thing that I at least struggle with that, you know, I'm sure everyone struggles with is, are you doing the things that are urgent, but not important? And so one of the things I do try to do is at the end of every day and at the beginning of every week, I list out what are the important things that I should be focusing on that aren't urgent, you know, that aren't sort of hitting us in three weeks, three months, three years down the road, so that I actually spend time on those because you can just get eaten up by urgent and not important. And then, you know, your business will have no strategy. Right. Regarding the social media stuff, one thing that I did recently was I turned off, aside from text messages, all of my notifications on my iPhone. So I don't get any notifications on my iPhone except for text messages. And then uh, one other thing that I did recently was I bought an alarm clock because I found myself in the same uh, habit of waking up in the middle of the night and checking my phone to see what time it was and then going into email, etc. So to prevent that, I, I got an alarm clock where now I look at the clock in the middle of the night, I see it's four in the morning, and then I don't check my phone and I go back to sleep. And it's been... Uh, super helpful. Um, I need to do that. Like if this was 1985 and someone heard that like the CEOs of tech companies were saying like, I have a brilliant idea, buy an alarm clock. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone would laugh, but exactly. it, it really is great advice, Corey. Do you do anything weird? Do you have a weird habit that you do every day? Anything weird? No, I think the weirdest thing about me is that I love magic. I'm like a huge sucker for magicians. I even had a magician at my wedding, but I certainly don't do magic every day. So I won't I won't cop to that weird thing. And and what were your what were your teenage years like? What was high school like? What was college like? So the thing about high school is that for the most part, you sort of get props if you're good at two things, if you're good at academics or if you're good at sports. In so many high school scenarios, no one is appreciated for being unbelievably creative or even, you know, good at coding. Like I took computer science in high school, no one cared, but no one's sort of lauded for those other talents. And all that matters is academics and sports. That being said, I was really good at academics and sports. So I really loved high school. I had a wonderfully 
economically and racially diverse public school that I attended. I had a great group of friends, my best friends to this day I have known since I was 11. And I got along with my siblings. So I had a pretty awesome high school experience. And as someone who sort of knew that my parents weren't paying for college, that was like pretty much thrown out since we were like five. It also just pushed me to work hard because I knew that the only way I was going to get to college was if some college was going to give me a scholarship based on academics. And that propelled me to work hard. And, and then I got into Wash U, which was awesome. And I had a great time there too. What were your 20s like? Did you know immediately that this is a type of work that you wanted to be doing? Or was there any confusion? No, I've, I've known forever. I mean, like I gave a big speech in ninth grade in my social studies class about the rising inequalities in our country and the difference between the rich and the poor. And someone actually graffitied my locker with the word communist when I was 14 because of my like crazy radical views. So I always knew I was going to go into this work. I was an economics major in college. And so I definitely saw my friends go off to, you know, financial services or consulting. But the minute I decided that like, no, I want to, you know, try my hand at nonprofits. I want to prove to people that they're efficient and effective and can be market-based. That was a really great moment because it solidified what I wanted to do. And then I haven't looked back. I still sort of use my love of economics and my love of numbers and my love of statistics every day. But I, you know, I love the field I'm in. What would be your advice to uh, someone in college or just graduating that doesn't know what they want to do and they're trying to figure that out? It's so trite, but I would say think of what you love and not the like typical, like do what you love, but think about the things that you love to do that probably signify that you're good at them. My, my biggest takeaway from being a do something for 12 years is that there's not talented people and untalented people. There's people who are talented at specific functions and specific jobs. And there's people who aren't, you know, if I was hired to be the creative director, I would fail and I would be fired. You know, if I was hired to be a writer, I would fail and I'd be fired. And so I would really just think about what you love to do, because that probably signifies that you're pretty good at it and go all in on that. Just go all in on what you're amazing at. And then you will be the most successful that you can be. We've had people join do something and we've been about to fire them. We've switched their role, switched their function to do something and they've absolutely thrived and been promoted. So I think finding the right fit for your skill set is absolutely crucial. What do you think the future of nonprofits look like? What do you think the future of Do Something looks like? How often should companies evolve? How should they, you know, what should their KPIs be? Where do you see the future of nonprofits going? So I think the future of nonprofits and the future of do something might diverge a little bit. So the future of nonprofits, I think we're going to see consolidation in the space. So everyone complains about there being too many nonprofits. You know, there's a new nonprofit incorporated every 15 minutes. We, you know, we have over 1.5 million of us. And because of constrained funding sources, nonprofits are going to have to either collaborate or close their doors in order to survive. So I think we're going to see some really smart collaborations, which I think is going to be fantastic. And and for Do Something in particular, you know, we've been pretty lucky in figuring out how to create both earned income and revenue streams and revenue streams that come from corporate partners, which is very rare for a nonprofit. And so I think for us, the future is all about how can we compete in the marketplace, not as a nonprofit, but just for a young person's time. You know, when you're 17, you don't say, oh, you know, I'll go to do something.org or I'll go, you know, or I'll download the after school app. It's okay for Do Something to have worse technology because they're a nonprofit. Absolutely not. We need to have the best technology, the best community, the best product possible. And so we're going to be competing on that playing field. And I welcome that because folks who are doing social change should be just as sophisticated as everyone else.
Very cool. What are some ineffective things that you see people do, whether that be fellow CEOs, people on your team? What are some ineffective things that you see people do that if you are mentoring someone younger than you with less experience, you would say, hey, here are some urgent but not important things that you shouldn't worry about? Um, Well, it's interesting. I looked at my to-do list from a year ago because I I had it online and I just laughed at myself. I was like, oh God, did I really spend time on those things? That's embarrassing. So for folks who are just starting out, I would just say every single thing that you think is a crisis isn't. The things that are really going to bring you down are not the sort of like day-to-day fires that seems like such a big deal. And it took me a long time to sort of learn that lesson that everything you think is a crisis isn't. But one of the sort of lessons that I'm trying to learn to make myself more effective is just really to think about the outcomes. You know, you don't have to win if you're in a partnership dispute or if you're, you know, talking to an employee or whatever it is. Just think about how to get the best outcome and what you need to do to get there. You might not have to be right to get the best outcome and you just want to get to the best place. So just, again, really being strategic about how do we all reach the best outcomes. And I think this, you know, plays a lot in the diversity space. Everyone talks about women and people of color and technology. And I think it's such an important discussion to have. But I think that the way to get there is probably not by vilifying white men. It's by bringing white men into the conversation. And, you know, that might not feel so great to some people. They want to punish um, some of the bad actors in the space. But I would just say, Think about the end that you want and what is the best way to get there. I like that. And one of the biggest questions that I get from people who attend Internapalooza, current college students, is how do I build a network? So what would your advice be to these students that you know, go to school all over North America that aren't necessarily in New York, not necessarily in San Francisco? What would be your advice to them for how to build a network? So I'm not just saying this, Corey, because we're talking to each other, but the point is move. They have internal palooza. You asked me about sort of my mentors and who's been the most helpful. And certainly expert advice has been critical, but the people who have been most helpful to my success have been my peers. And so I think that when you're at internal palooza, instead of trying to meet the next big speaker that's there or the next, you know, big person who's 20 years ahead of you in your career, create deep relationships with your peers and support them because then they will support you. And so then you create this awesome reinforcing positive narrative and they help you get places, which I think is pretty awesome. I want to talk a little bit about controversy. Do you have any stories about do something firsthand or secondhand of any controversial situations that have have come up? So this really reminds me of a campaign we were running last May, June. So we were actually looking at the issue of Islamophobia at Do Something. We saw that Islamophobia in the United States in particular was increasing and hate crimes against Muslim Americans were on the rise. We were hearing from our Muslim members that they didn't feel safe or they were being taunted by wearing hijabs in school. And so we wanted to create a campaign to combat this. And Adam on our team came up with an amazing campaign. He wanted our members, Do Something members, to create homemade happy Ramadan cards and we would deliver them to every single mosque in America to just show the Muslim community in the U.S. that like teenagers got your back, they won't discriminate against you, they all, you know, welcome you into their communities with open arms. We were so pumped about this campaign. It was going to be incredible. Um, We wanted to launch a few weeks before Ramadan so we could have time to make all these awesome cards. And two things happened. First, we went out to lots of companies and corporate sponsors and brands and we're trying to figure out who wanted to sponsor this campaign. And 
it was crickets. I mean, no one wanted to touch this campaign with a 10-foot pole because, unfortunately, Islamophobia was seen as too controversial. So we said, okay, no big deal. We'll just run this campaign without a sponsor. We can, you know, we can cover the costs. But then the second thing happened was that the Manchester terrorist attack at the Ariana Grande concert in England happened two days before we were set to launch this campaign. And so first, all of our celebrities dropped out um, and refused to participate in the campaign. And we were advised to just drop the campaign. Don't do it. Give people time to heal. You know, this is too raw. This is insensitive. What are you doing? And we didn't want to be insensitive, but we saw that this was going to be the perfect time to launch the campaign. After a terrorist attack, actually, Islamophobia increases. And we need to, you know, show the youth of America and have them show the world that, you know, a terrorist is not indicative of the vast majority of Muslim Americans. And so I'm really proud of my team. My team pushed forward. We launched the campaign anyway with no sponsor, with no celebrities, you know, with no support. And it was slow going. But in the end, the campaign was enormously successful. We sent over 45,000 homemade cards to every single mosque in America. And we got great media pickup. You know, everyone from Refinery29 to NBC picked it up and talked about the campaign. And we got to highlight the incredible Do Something members who are creating these cards. And, you know, it doesn't always work out that way. But I'm really proud that we stuck to our guns and said, you know, we have to stand up for what we believe in and launch the campaign anyway. That's awesome. Congratulations. And and how do you how do you think people should deal with controversy? Do you think people should shy away from it, seek it or just not back away when when it comes up? I think in general, if you don't see any controversy with anything you're doing, maybe that's a problem. You know, I think you certainly shouldn't be afraid of pushing the envelope, especially if it's for standing up for something you believe in. And not to mention, there's always going to be haters and there's always going to be trolls. And Do Something sees this a lot where we see on, you know, Facebook or Twitter or social media that all of a sudden people will be attacking us for, you know, some stance or another that we made. And, you know, it freaks us out. We say, oh, you know, should we back away? But then we look more closely and we see two things. One is that most of the people who are trolling us are 40, 50, and 60 years old. They're not our target market. And two, we see a much, much greater chorus of young people supporting those very same actions. And so that's what's important to us. It's like if we were alienating all of our members for being too controversial, that would be, you know, that'd be a concern. But if we're alienating a few 45-year-olds, then that's fine. Do you remember the first time you were trolled? Oh, it's really been too many to name, but we've been called some pretty terrible names. And I think the sort of first time that we were trolled when I was CEO, that's probably that sticks with me more than ever, because you also have to worry about your revenue model, especially when you're working with corporate brands. So yeah, it was pretty scary. We do something was attacked by a lot of super right wing sort of alt right Nazi websites. And they went after us for our various points of views, you know, anti-discrimination, you know, really, quote unquote, controversial things like that. And I think the thing that scared us was they started naming all of our sponsors. And so we, you know, had to worry, wow, if all of our sponsors back out, you know, then how can we run our business? But we also have to trust that the companies that we work with are stand up companies that aren't going to back away just because some alt-right websites are name checking them. And we were right, no one backed away and it turned out okay. But certainly, again, as a first time CEO, I was like, oh, I better not screw this up. 
What's something controversial today that you think won't be tomorrow? Oh, I mean, anything related to like gay rights in the trans community. I mean, I think we've seen how, again, not quickly for the people who are experiencing it, but we've seen public opinion shift pretty rapidly. So I think that issue certainly is going to become way less controversial. And then I actually think that, and, and, and I might be wrong on this, but I hope not. Climate change, for some reason, has become sort of politicized and controversial. And I think the pendulum will swing back the other way. And it will not be a controversial issue in, you know, five to 10 years, because everyone will just believe in it and be fighting, figure out what to do. When you were growing up as a high school or college student, was there anything controversial that you did? Anything your parents kind of didn't agree with or your family said, uh, Ari, I, I don't think you should go that route? Uh, I mean, I got my tongue pierced. <laughs> um, I mean, I had my tongue pierced for 12 years. My mom was so not happy with me. I mean, I was hired to do something with a tongue ring. So uh, luckily, it didn't, it didn't stop me from getting a job. But I actually think growing up, the controversial thing for me to do would have been if I had sort of become a lawyer or a financial planner, it was forbidden that I become a lawyer in my family. And so I would have been I would have been ostracized. What are some of the books and podcasts that you'd recommend to people that you really like today? I love so many podcasts. <laughs> it's just absurd that there's way too many to name. I mean, I love the like old favorites like This American Life and Radio Lab and Planet Money. But I also love so much of the new stuff coming out of Gimlet, whether it's Reply All or Startup. I just think they're they're super smart and they're not always related to my business, but they just get you to think. And, you know, you asked earlier about what, you know, sort of college seniors should be thinking about. Everyone should just be thinking about how to think, you know, how to just know more about the entire world. And so I love those podcasts that are slightly out of my comfort zone that I'm just learning something new. And I write down every book I read. And this is so embarrassing. In 2015, I read 26 books, which I was like, okay, I feel good. And then I had a kid. And last year, I read two. So I'm not going to commit to any books just quite yet. I'm hoping that 2018, my New Year's resolution of uh, more books will uh, come true. How do we get hired by Do Something? What would be your advice for people that want to work with you? So my advice for people who want to work at Do Something, the two don'ts are don't say you want to work here because you're so passionate because there's 1.8 million nonprofits for you to go work at. And don't say you want to work here because you think it's fun. Those are table stakes. You know, we know you have to be passionate and we know we're fun. Prove that you're going to move the needle on our business objectives because we want to make sure that every single person here is not just passionate, but also has a business sense and is going to make sure that, you know, our KPIs are, are going through the roof. And I think that's the, the number one thing that impresses us the most when someone can have a balance between business sense and passion. Oh, I'll also say one thing about hiring is make sure you get the culture right. So this was a, a controversial, controversial thing that someone did. Someone was applying for a job on our campaigns team, focusing on the area of sex and relationship. So, you know, domestic abuse and HIV and all these very, you know, important issues related to sex and relationships. And to with her application, she sent us a cake in the mold of a penis. And it was the most hilarious thing that anyone had ever done that we immediately said that she could come in for an interview. And then we hired her. And this is true. A year later, she transitioned from the campaigns team <laughs> to, to the talent team. And now she runs HR for Do Something. So wow. as long as you're on brand and you get our culture, you can, uh, you can impress us with, with some quirky stuff coming through the mail. Is that the craziest thing that's come through the mail? Is anything else? What's second place? 
Uh, second place is we got a pillow with Beyonce's face on it because everyone loves Beyonce so much here. We've gotten like homemade poems. We had my executive assistant actually created a website, hireme.com, which was like imp- very impressive and amazing. So uh, definitely we've had people stand out, uh, stand out from the pack. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Corey, I totally appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Arya. Thanks so much, Corey. Have a good day. Bye.